Lord give you his peace. Good morning. Um, I want to give uh, a little bit of a historical background to this most famous prophecy from Isaiah 714, and then a spiritual application. Um, so it's Sunday, so, you know, it's a little more, you know, a little extra to the homily here. Okay, no, no classes to get to this morning. Um, so as you know, the wonderful, uh, beautiful season of Advent, the liturgy of the church gives us an opportunity to revisit all of these prophecies from the Old Testament, which promised the coming of the Messiah, which Jesus, when he came, fulfilled. And out of all of those prophecies from this huge, you know, uh, era of time, like 5,000 years before Christ to about 300 years before Christ, uh, all these various different kind of prophecies, different passages, I would propose that the best one or the most important one, the one really, really, really to know is the one from today's Mass, Isaiah 7, 14. Um, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, God, God, God with us. And um, so it's a big uh, claim. It's a bold claim. Um, so uh, obviously when the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write his gospel, Matthew 1, 23 explicitly states that this was fulfilled in the fact that Mary conceived Jesus as a virgin. She's, uh, as the church would go on to proclaim later dogmatically, de fide, it's true, gotta believe it. Uh, she was a virgin before, during, and after the, the uh, conception and birth of Jesus. And um, so it's important. So a little of the historical background, what was going on? Uh, what was the context of this prophecy from Isaiah 714? So it happened around 730, 720 BC. So about 700 years before Christ. And you had King Ahaz, was the king of Judah in Jerusalem. So that's the Davidic kingship. So 300 years before that, around the year 1000 BC, you had King David and all of the prophecies, the promises that God made to David about his dynasty, his kingship. And you can read about that, obviously, 2 Samuel 6, 2 Samuel 7. But uh, that, those prophecies became really important as the New Testament in constantly talking about how Jesus is the son of David and he fulfills the promises that God gave to David. So that's the background. If King Ahaz, he's a descendant of David, he's in Jerusalem, and King Ahaz, we know from 2 Kings 16, was a terrible king. He was an apostate king. And he was under attack from uh, Damascus and Israel. So these two kind of kingdoms were sieging Jerusalem. Jerusalem was under siege, they were under attack. And uh, so what King Ahaz does, he reaches out to the king of uh, Assyria, which I think is around Baghdad, this guy Tiglath-Pileser. Isn't that an incredible name? So instead of trusting in the Lord and trusting in the promises that the Lord gave to David, about preserving the dynasty of David's king kingdom. Um, in his lack of faith, he reaches out to this pagan king for protection. He takes all the silver and gold from the temple in the palace, sends it to this king in Assyria, this Tiglath-Pileser. And then, um, so that's what's going on. And it says in 2 Kings 16 that this guy even sacrificed his own son in fire. He burned his own son and a holocaust of fire to these pagan deities. So, that, you know, this, this guy is really off. He's really a, uh, 
an apostate king in the line of David, but you know, really uh, did not serve the Lord. That's the, that's the main point. And so it's interesting, just north of the temple area, there's this pool and there's a conduit from the Gihon Spring. And this is where the Lord sends the prophet Isaiah to confront him. That's what's happening. And so he, he, this prophecy is confronting Ahaz to have faith and trust in the Lord and not in this pagan king from Assyria. And then he, he invites him to, to ask the Lord for a sign that you can trust this word, you can trust this prophecy. You know, because probably in terms of a military strategy, this was madness. You know, you, he was under attack from two kingdoms, you know, and so from a military perspective, it makes sense. You reach out to a superpower to come in and help you. And uh, so the word of the Lord was, don't do that. Have faith in the Lord, this promise that God had given to King David, that he would preserve that dynasty. And uh, so ask the Lord for a sign to help confirm you to, to have faith and to convert and to believe that God is going to be the one to rescue you, not some superpower. And um, so ironically or sarcastically, King Ahaz says, I don't want to tempt the Lord. I'm not going to ask for a sign, which, you know, given what we know of this guy, that, that it was like sarcasm, you know. So, you know, again, this King Ahaz was, a, was a, an apostate king. And so it's, that's the context. And then this really wild prophecy is given. You know, this prophecy that, is gonna, that God will send a sign. And this sign is going to be as deep as the netherworld and as high as the sky. Um, which is kind of an interesting kind of description. That a virgin will conceive and bear a son and he will be Emmanuel, God with us. And um, so as you know from your studies, there's a debate. Was, was the word that was used really the word virgin? You know, in the Hebrew original... The word halma or alma could have also meant just a young woman. And I think it's pretty clear, um, even from scholarly studies, that the word really is appropriately understood as virgin. Virgin, which in that culture, a young unmarried girl uh, was a virgin. You know, I don't know about nowadays, but anyways. Um, so when they translated the Hebrew original into the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, as you all know, they clearly translated it with the word parthenos, which is virgin. And then when it came into Latin in the Christian era, it was Virgo, virgin. And um, so just a little, a little funny background to this idea. Um, there's another passage from the beginning of the Bible that seems to hint at this very prophecy. Um, it's Genesis 3.15, when the Lord is uh, giving the punishment to Adam and Eve and the serpent. And he says to the serpent that I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed, and the seed of the woman will crush your head, you know, with the heel. Um, the proto-evangelium, the very first prophecy of the gospel, the Hebrew construction there is very irregular and awkward. The, it will be the seed of the woman, which is a very irregular way to say it. The seed is always from the man in that culture at that time. So the seed of the woman, very weird and awkward. So even the early church fathers saw that as a precursor of this prophecy of Isaiah 7:14 that a virgin should conceive. Okay. So, anyways, it sounds more like a scripture class right now than a homily, right? Okay. So that's the background. So what's going on there? You know, why the virginity of the Messiah's mother? You know, so we know now, all these years later, that he would be true God and true man. And so her virginity, in some ways, safeguards the truth of the fact that he had no human father and that he was true God. Um, and that's how the early church fathers held on to the importance of the fact that Mary was a virgin. 
And uh, if you want to be a little more basic about it, when a virgin conceives and gets pregnant with a son, without the help of any male seed, um, obviously this is a miracle. And it's something that says to us that only God could have done that. <laughs> you know, there's no science. There's no any possible explanation. It never happened before. It's never happened since that just a woman without any genetic help from a man, you know, got pregnant, conceived. So ultimately, not only does it safeguard the true divinity of Jesus, but um, it highlights the fact that God is saying, I'm going to do something. And what I'm going to do when I send the Messiah and I am with you and I come, it's going to be in such a way that it's really, really clear that only God, it's only me. There's no other possible explanation. And um, so if, if that is the case, uh, I want to see that in the context of other moments when that happened, right? Throughout salvation history, there were other moments when God showed up and did something that, that was super clear that it was him doing it and it was no possible way that any man did it. Think of like when the, the Red Sea parted, right? They, they had their backs to the sea. Pharaoh and the army were coming. They were going to get wiped out and they, they had no human hope at all. And uh, God did a miracle and they were able to escape. And there are a lot of other situations, right? When uh, Abraham and Sarah finally conceive Isaac, the, the fulfillment of the prophecies that God gave. They're elderly. They're like 99 and 100 years old, okay? So the message there, only God could have done it. And uh, one of the conditions that makes it clear that only God could have done it is the absolute, uh, how do I want to word this? The absolute a situation that makes it super clear that, that man is, cannot do it like coming face to face with humans' limitations, okay? Um, the ultimate example of that, and I think the virginity of Mary in some way points to the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? The, the moment of his death on the cross, and they confirm his death by piercing his heart with a lance, and then they lay his corpse in a tomb and roll the stone, and he's in that tomb, cold, dead corpse for three days, and then the resurrection. That's the ultimate moment of this like humanly impossible clearly god did it god at work this god is intervention okay so i would like to propose that all of this is somehow connected to this important prophecy of isaiah 7:14 that a virgin would conceive and that would be the son emmanuel god is with us um, so the spiritual application it is so painful yet so good and important for each person to have a moment or two or 10 when you come face to face with your own human limitations, when you come face to face, when you have moments, when you have situations, when you are completely and totally experiencing the truth, the reality that we are not God, you know, those are horrible, ugly, messy, painful moments, but so good, so good. And my, my prayer is that each one of us would have moments like that when we, you know, our, our pride, in our, this little piece of us that thinks that we can do it all, when that gets crushed, you know, those moments of communion with the crucifixion, you know? Um, when we are confronted with our sin and we are confronted with the reality that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot save the world, sorry all you politicians who make these promises, and that when we can't save ourselves and we can't forgive ourselves and are, we are completely um, impotent, unable, to, you know, to offer reparation for that. Um, those are moments that are so good. Those are moments when, if 
we have an ounce of humility, we can open our minds, open our hearts to God. You know, giving God an opportunity to come in and be God and do, to do something that only God can do. Though that is such a key moment for every person. Those are, that's the moment of salvation. When you say, I can't, but God can. Uh, how do you want to word it? When you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, when you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. Okay, what, you know, all those passages. You know, it, what's going on there is this moment of this radical acceptance of what's true, what's real, that I'm human, that I'm not God, that I'm limited, and I need a Savior. I need God. I need his help. Um, and there's probably many moments along the way where that happens, huh? And they're, they're awkward and they're difficult and they hurt. And uh, it is a participation in the death of Jesus on the cross. But it's so good <clears throat> when your back is against the sea, <clears throat> when it's just humanly impossible, uh, when all human hope, you know, uh, that we can do things without God, all of that just gets crushed and like buried in the ground. And it, you know, oh, so good, so good. So it gives us an opportunity to be humble and to really open ourselves to the truth that we need God, that we need his help, we need his grace, we need his mercy. And um, just as the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate moment of that, the resurrection only follows the crucifixion. So also for us, so, you know, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this one passage, but this virginity of Mary is so important that uh, this fruitfulness that only God could have brought. And I'll conclude by saying, for those of us who have a vocation to religious life, I firmly believe that the spirituality of the evangelical councils are three vows, are a participation in this mystery. You know, if you think about it, in our poverty, we have nothing. In our Father's kingdom, he, we have our daily bread. We have everything we need. And when the food shows up on the table, not one of us earned it. Not one of us purchased it with money we, from our job. Or, you know, every bite of every food, you know, it all came from God's providence through the donation of benefactors. And uh, we shouldn't feel bad about that. Rather, we should be thankful. You know, in, in our vow of celibacy, in our life of chastity, you know, we don't have wives. We don't have families. We don't have children. And yet, we are experiencing a fecundity and fruitfulness that is above and beyond what any human love could bring. You know, and then in our vow of obedience, we don't get our own will. We don't make our own plans. We don't guide our own ship. And instead of being locked in a prison, we are set free. We have the opportunity to receive the will of God and to, to live life to the full. You know, it's paradoxical, right? So poverty, chastity, and obedience, the evangelical counsels, the imitation of Jesus who lived that way, ends up bringing... Uh, fruitfulness that only God could have brought. And uh, so the virginity of Mary, the mother of the Messiah, I believe is a sign which proclaims all of that. It's as deep as the netherworld. It's as high as the sky. It's, it's, the, it's, a, it's a, an example. It's an icon. It's an image which proclaims the uh, kingship of God, the kingship of God. And so uh, we pray for the grace to believe this, to see the sign, to understand it, and to follow where it points. An abandonment to the Lord, an openness of mind and heart, that we may live for him in all things. Amen. A couple of items I forgot to mention. The uh, area of the waterworks to the north of the temple where uh, the prophet Isaiah confronted King Ahaz was kind of a laundromat. Uh, they were used cleaning things there with that water. So it was a perfect place to kind of confront him and invite him to conversion, to uh, clean up his act. And then also, 
700 years later, around that time, in that same neighborhood where that water is, that is where Anne and Joachim had their house and where uh, tradition has it that they conceived and gave birth to the Virgin Mary, who would end up being the virgin who would conceive and bear Emmanuel. So in the same spot, the same location where Isaiah uttered that prophecy of Isaiah 7:14, is the place where the Virgin Mary was conceived and born. And uh, kind of a neat historical fact. Uh, thank you and God bless you. Historical fact.